1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And today we're uncovering secrets from what gravitational waves can reveal about the deepest mysteries of the universe.
0: What we can do with gravitational waves is open up a completely new window onto the universe. You can literally take pictures of back holes. We didn't even know they properly existed until then. To the formula for success.
2: In the last kind of 10 years, my lab have been focusing on what makes a scientist, what makes an artist, what makes a businessman successful, collecting a huge amount of data, not only about the success stories, but also about the failures.
1: But first, picture a farm. Specifically, picture a farm producing fresh vegetables. Perhaps you're thinking of rolling green fields, huge tractors, maybe a little red farmhouse in the distance. Well, think again. Around the world, so-called vertical farming is becoming increasingly popular. Investors, including SoftBank, the Japanese firm, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, are plowing hundreds of millions of dollars into the technology. It may be one of the ways to address growing pressures on food production, According to the U.N., climate change could decrease farming output by up to a quarter by 2050, while at the same time, the global population is predicted to grow by around 2 billion. That's a lot of hungry mouths to feed. Joel Coelho is a professor of biosystems engineering at the University of Arizona. He's an expert on sustainable agriculture, and he has built his own vertical farms. He joins me now down the line. Hello, Joel.
3: Hi, Ken. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. My first question is the most fundamental. What are vertical farms?
3: Vertical farms are essentially a controlled environment uh, system in the form of a warehouse, in the form of a modular unit like a... uh, shipping container wherein you control uh, most of the uh, environmental parameters that are important in growing crops so that you're able to grow the crops at optimal rates and essentially in a way that is independent of the climate and the geography. And the plants are typically grown as well uh, without any soil, but using uh, liquid nutrient solutions, either in the form of hydroponic uh, nutrient solutions or aeroponic nutrient solution.
1: Now, the idea of vertical farming isn't entirely new. The term was around since the early 20th century. So why is it having a renaissance?
3: I would say that it's uh, due to uh, the convergence or confluence of uh, a number of technologies. Uh, So I would say that the foundation for Vertical Farm really began with uh, the space program, both with the United States as well as with the former Soviet Union, because they have to develop uh, space farming to be able to sustain the uh, the food requirements of astronauts and cosmonauts for uh, long-duration space missions. And so they started developing these controlled environment systems where they could grow various uh, types of crops, again, using nutrient solutions, hydroponics, aeroponics, um, and using artificial lighting where they control the temperature, the relative humidity, as well as uh, all the other uh, necessary uh, factors. And so in the 1980s, the industry began emerging in Japan. Uh, in a commercial level. And then fast forward to today, where now we have you know big data, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got uh, automation, we've got uh, robotics. And, and really the, the confluence of all of this really has uh, given what you might call a renaissance to uh, vertical farming today.
1: And how tall are these vertical farms?
3: Well, they could be as tall as, as you want. Although uh, typically in Japan, I've seen vertical farms that are equivalent of a uh, five-story or six-story building.
1: Now, what are the benefits of growing food like this?
3: This type of food production practically is independent of geography and climate. And as you know, with uh, the uh, extreme weather events that are happening today in many countries, particularly in the tropics, there seems to be no uh, predictability now in outdoor farming. And so a lot of farmers are are suffering as a result. Uh, So when you operate in this way, you're able to ensure maximum productivity, maximum yield, maximum quality, uh, and it's safe. Uh, You can operate it without the use of pesticides and also minimizing food waste as well.
1: And what about the role of things that you mentioned like robots and artificial intelligence? How will that be played in the process?
3: With artificial intelligence, for instance, I would say that its most important contribution to vertical farming is being able to really maximize not just the productivity, but I would say even the nutrient profile or the, uh, the flavor profile of any given crop. And that would be correlated with all of the environmental factors and nutritional factors uh, that the plants are accessing. So whether it's temperature, relative humidity, and in terms of light, it could be the light quality, the color of the light, how much red, how much blue, and also the light intensity and the photo period. All of these combinations, as well as uh, what uh, nutrients, all of these would contribute to creating the flavor profile or nutrient profile that is desired with the crops. And the great thing about um, artificial intelligence algorithm is that it's able to figure that out on its own.
1: So it sounds like we've looked at all of the good things that are going to come from vertical farming, but there's a downside. It seems to be very resource heavy, in particular, electricity.
3: You're right. (laughs) So in terms of water, it's actually, you know, using significantly less water compared with open field cultivation. Uh, It's able to save as much as, uh, you know, 80 percent. I would say some are reporting 94 percent of water. But you have to pay somewhere. And that is in terms of uh, electrical energy. However, if you can source your electrical energy so that it becomes uh, renewable, then uh, you're able to solve that problem.
1: Now, I can imagine that vertical farming is going to be a boon for people in urban centers, millennials who are rich and, you know, and want the the most flavorful Basel they can imagine. But will it really be practical for feeding the world at a larger scale?
3: I would say so, although I have to qualify that by saying that vertical farming is not pretending to be a silver bullet or it's not pretending to be a panacea. Uh, you're not going to be growing all types of crops uh, in vertical farms. That is not practical.
1: What I think is so exciting about this is there's lots of fruits and vegetables that have now being grown for the purpose of shipping it elsewhere that now will be grown closer to the place of consumption in small batches that are a lot more flavorful varieties that don't need to last a long time on a boat. Do you see a new renaissance in these types of niche artisan foodstuffs?
3: Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, And that's one of the beauty of vertical farming is that it's extremely local. It's hyper-local. And so you don't have to ship this uh, flavorful uh, vegetables or crops or herbs from, you know, across the world because you can grow them right in your neighborhood. Joel
1: Coelho, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much, Ken.
1: And if you want to learn more about vertical farming, you can read about it in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, from Copernicus to Kepler to Newton and Einstein, gravity has long fascinated mankind. Trying to understand how gravity binds objects and the universe together launched physics as a discipline. But there are still great unknowns. The recent upgrades of gravitational wave detectors in America and Italy may now help scientists unlock some of the mysteries of the universe. Joining me to discuss this is Alok Jaw, the economist' science correspondent, and he's in the studio now. Hello, Alok. Hi Ken. Alok, first, let's start with the basics. What are gravitational
0: waves? Gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time. And what that means is it's the way that uh, the force of gravity is transmitted from one place to another. And so just like electromagnetic waves, light transfers from one place to another in waves, gravity does the same thing. Um, in gravitational waves, but they're very, 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 very small. So either you need an incredibly sensitive detector or a massive, massive event in the universe to detect them. We only discovered and detected the very, very first one in 2015, and just recently, um, the upgraded detectors in the um, in America and Italy to sort of now detect some every single week from around the universe somewhere. So, what are they detecting, and how? So, gravitational waves are. Uh, one of the things predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity. And, uh, general relativity is a theory of gravity. It's, uh, trying to explain how gravity works and is transmitted through the universe. And at cosmic scales, anything above sort of, um, human scale, gravity is the most important force. It's the thing that determines the evolutions of galaxies, um, how stars form. Um, and so for a hundred years, we've been looking for these gravitational waves to show that general relativity is correct. And in 2015, we found them. And the way you find them is using an interference an interferometer is, um, imagine a V shaped uh, device, and each arm of the V is four kilometers long. And down each arm, you fire a laser, essentially. You fire the laser down this arm, and the lasers bounce off the ends and come back to the, their source. These lasers are completely in phase with each other, so when they reach their source, and at the beginning, um, they cancel each other out, so there's no signal at all. And when a gravitational wave passes this setup, what will happen is that the space time. The entire instrument will squash and squeeze and expand in different ways, uh, because that's what gravitational waves do. If, if they were to pass through this room now, we would literally get, you know, squeeze and, and expand, squeeze and expand as, as space time does that. So because these arms of the interferometer are at 45 degrees to each other, they will compress and expand at different rates if a gravitational wave goes past. So that means the lasers will be no longer completely out of phase. That means you get a signal, and that's how you detect them. So what are we now learning that we can detect? Gravitational waves are incredibly small, so you need some massive, massive event in the universe to create some waves big enough for us to detect in the first place. So that means the very first one we detected was the collision of two enormous black holes. And that released huge amounts of gravitational waves which reached the Earth. And these gravitational waves were many billions of light years away. They reached the Earth, and we can tell from the shape of the gravitational waves, the frequency, the direction, etc., um, how uh, the, the, the last moments of their life were. I mean, apparently these black holes sort of circled each other something like 3,000 times a second towards the end, and released so much energy that it was brighter than a galaxy, or even the universe, for a brief second. And so in 2017... so. One of the objects discovered in 2017 with the gravitational waves was the collision of two neutron stars. And we watched as these neutron stars came together, danced around each other, collided, threw off lots and lots of material. And that one was particularly interesting because not only did it emit gravitational waves, which allowed us to see how the masses were swirling around. and But they released lots of electromagnetic radiation, so X-rays, uh, visible light, um, which told us that in the clouds of debris were things like gold and platinum. And it proved, actually, one of the theories of where the heavy elements come from. The way that elements are made is inside stars. They're cooked inside stars. And when stars explode at the end of their lives, they create even heavier elements, carbon, nitrogen, etc., but it was always a mystery. How does how do you make gold? How do you make platinum? How do you make these rare metals? Well, it turns out that it's from the collisions of neutron stars. Um, the ones we detected in 2017, these neutron stars collided and released the equivalent of an entire planet's worth of gold. They're very rare, these collisions which also tells us why these metals are rare. So the wedding ring you might be wearing right now made of gold or platinum or silver. Stainless steel, actually. Comes from these collisions. And we can sort of start to interrogate what's going on inside these collisions using gravitational waves. So on August 14th, the two labs identified something new. What was it? The interesting new thing that the gravitational wave detectors found was the collision between a neutron star and a black hole. So they've seen black hole black hole collisions, they've seen neutron star neutron star collisions, and this one was new a neutron star and a black hole. Now why is that interesting? It's because it allows you to do more investigation of what's inside a neutron star. Um, neutron stars are these bizarre objects, we don't know much about them and um, we started to interrogate them by collisions between the neutron stars themselves but those collisions are not really energetic enough to let you see what's inside. Theoretical models of these things just don't work it's the only way you can actually observe what What's genuinely inside this bizarre, bizarre object is if you watch a black hole, which is the densest object in the universe, tear a neutron star apart for enough time to just watch what's there before it gets sucked in. And so that was the new thing they discovered this month.
1: And so what do scientists hope they can learn from all of this research?
0: What we can do with gravitational waves is open up a completely new window onto the universe. Until 2015, you could see the universe using light of different frequencies. You could use visible light, radio waves, x-rays, etc. And each one of those things gives you a different window onto the universe. What all those things don't do is tell you anything about the way mass moves around or doesn't allow you to see black holes which don't emit any light. Gravitational waves can let you do that. You can literally take pictures of black holes. We we didn't even know they properly existed until then. The other useful thing about gravitational waves is that they can let you see much, much further back in time than light. So when the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago, for the first 400,000 years, it was too hot and dense for light to escape. So if you use light, you can only go back uh, 400,000 years after the Big Bang. That's the furthest back you can see. Gravitational waves came out of the Big Bang itself, and you can see all the way back to the Big Bang. So when in the next generation, or perhaps the generation after that of gravitational wave detectors comes along, they will be able to take pictures of the Big Bang itself using gravitational waves. Alec, I've got
1: so many questions about entropy right now, but I'm going to park them for the moment. Let's go back to Einstein and the theory of relativity. He predicted gravitational waves in his paper... What else are we going to learn and how is it going to affect our understanding of
0: relativity? So general theory of relativity has worked really well for a century and it's perfect. And every experimental uh, attempt we've made to check it has worked. And so it's a very good theory. Um, But we know it can't be right because the universe is quantum and, and quantum field theory and general relativity don't work together. So there's got to be a quantum theory of gravity. So what the future of gravitational wave physics will also do for theoretical physics is to help check the edges of general relativity find those examples of enormous black holes and collisions and explosions where general relativity doesn't quite work and that gives you a window into where general relativity might be wrong and that might then give you steps into creating the sort of quantum version of general relativity so yeah gravitational waves were predicted by Einstein but they might be the thing that ultimately proves him wrong which is what all scientists want in the end look, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken.
1: Now, regular listeners of the Babbage program know that every now and then we give away a free book to one lucky listener in return to a pithy comment that they email to us. We always have one question and we get lots of great answers, but only one person will win. The book this week is What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics by Adam Becker. And the question is this. What aspect of the physical universe are we not aware about today because we cannot measure? But over the next 50 years, we will be able to uncover because we will be able to detect it. If you have any speculations, either informed or more aberrant, please email radio at economist.com and our panel of judges that are completely subjective and unscientific will look for the pithiest or the most insightful answer and will choose a winner. And finally, a very special treat for you, the secret to being successful. Alberto Barabasi is a physicist and a professor of network science at Northeastern University, and he's tried to work this out. He's written a book called The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. Now, he is a hero of mine. I've read many of his papers. And so I started out by asking him, what are those laws?
2: The first law is performance drives success, but when performance can't be measured, networks drive success. The second law tells us that performance is bounded, but success is unbounded. The third law tells us that previous success times fitness equals future success. The fourth law formulates that while team success requires diversity and balance, a single individual will receive credit for the group's achievement. And finally, the fifth law says, with persistence, success can come at any time.
1: Okay, so this is very optimistic, but have we learned something new through network science that we didn't know before?
2: I'm a data scientist, a network scientist, as you mentioned, and uh, you know, I was always bothered by the fact that much of the success or the science of success that we talk about is really not based on data. But the opportunity has really arrived to us in the last few years thanks to the so much data about the career of many individuals to start exploring them. And so in the last kind of 10 years, my lab, many people in my lab have been focusing on what makes a scientist, what makes an artist, what makes a businessman successful, collecting a huge amount of data, not only about the success stories, but also about the failures, like everyone who participated in that field. And in the formula, I tried to distill the laws and the patterns that we kind of, we and others actually discovered during this process.
1: And what kind of data did you actually collect
2: Uh, Well, we had several major data sets that we focused on. We started with science. Obviously, we're scientists, so we were curious, what is the secret of success or a successful career in science? So we have reconstructed the career of every single scientist from 1900 till today, whether they won a Nobel Prize or they're totally unknown to anybody today to the scientific community. But we were also lucky to have access to a major data set on art where we were able to reconstruct the career of all artists in the last four years from every single exhibit they did around the world. And that gave us, again, a total corpus of what it takes for an artist to arrive to the Tate Museum or some other major venues that really means that they have arrived.
1: Right. And for journalists, have you looked at what makes a journalist successful just asking for a friend?
2: Well, that's a good point. So we actually think that the laws that we distilled from science and art and other areas like writers and so on apply to most areas of uh, intellectual and non-intellectual journeys. So even though we have not analyzed journalists, but we did analyze writers and book success, I firmly believe that the five laws that I describe will apply to your profession as well.
1: Albert, you said that someone can find success at any age. What do you mean?
2: Well, this was the pleasant surprise that came out of our research. There is lots of uh, literature out there in the genius literature telling us that mostly young people tend to be creative, that major discoveries are connected to relatively young individuals, both in the business world as well as in sciences and arts. So we put this question under the data microscope, and what we realized is that creativity has no age. Productivity does. That is, every project that we do during our life, whether it's papers published or music written, has the same chance of becoming our highest impact work in our career, except that young people tend to do many of those. They paint many paintings, they write lots of music, they prove lots of theorems, and it's like a lottery ticket. It looks like they're buying most of their lottery tickets early in their life. Hence, it appears that creativity and youth are interconnected. Our data has definitely showed that there is no connection between age and creativity. There's only a connection between keep trying and creativity.
1: So now, Albert, let me stop you there. You use as a case study in the book Miles Davis. Are you suggesting that because you have access to the data, you could pick up trumpeting and become as good as he?
2: No, not at all. What this law suggests, that if you are already a musician and you have not achieved success early on in your life, there is no reason to think that you will not achieve it later in your career. That is that every single project that you do, once you're good at it, has the same shot of becoming that defining project of your career.
1: That's great. I think there's hope for both of us. (laughs) There you are. Thank you very much, Albert. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukie, held down by gravitational waves and so therefore not as successful as I'd like. In London, this is The Economist.